The scripture reading for today's message comes from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm going to try as hard as I can not to cough into this microphone. I think y'all would appreciate that. So one day, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him up a mountain. And he was transfigured before before them there. That's what our scripture is about this morning. The Greek word that's translated here as transfigured is metamorphoth which is also where we get the word metamorphosis. But our word for that, metamorphosis, is, can't really be used in the scripture to be a, a bit misleading. A metamorphosis is like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, something becoming something new. But Jesus' transfiguration, the changing of his face and his clothing, wasn't really a change into something new. It was an uncovering of who Jesus really is. Peter and James and John got to witness, if only for a moment, the glory of God revealed through the Son. This was the true Jesus. There's been a lot of talk lately about who the real Jesus is, or the search for the historical Jesus. Now, few, if any, can dispute the fact that a man named Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago. We have the work of reliable scientific sources that prove that. Unbiased sources outside of the Bible. Jewish historians attribute Jesus to being a real person. Roman documents prove that Jesus was a real person. And if the Romans were good at two things, there were two things they were really good at. Conquering people and keeping records of the people they conquered. They have records of a man named Jesus from Nazareth who was crucified under the watch of Pontius Pilate. And much of the book of Acts has also been historically backed up by reliable sources. So there's little doubt that there was a real man named Jesus. The question that we are asking, the question that people have been asking for the last 2,000 and some odd years, the same question that the people in Jesus' day asked, 
the same question Jesus' disciples asked. It's just who that man really is. In the chapter right before our scripture for this morning, Jesus asked his disciples that question. Who do you think the Son of Man is? And they came up with a few different answers. Who do people say the Son of Man is? And then he asked them, what about you? What do you say that I am? And Peter answered, because, spoiler alert, it's always Peter that answers. Every time. If Jesus is yelling at a disciple, he's yelling at Peter. Because Peter had said something that was wrong. Even though for us, a lot of the times we'd find ourselves agreeing with him. Anyway, it's Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's correct. But he still didn't quite understand what that meant. A couple of verses later, Jesus predicts his death. And Peter takes him aside and yells at him, rebukes him and says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in your mind the things of God, but the things of man. It's interesting to me, back on the subject of the real Jesus, it's interesting to me that so often when people try to interpret who the real Jesus is, Jesus comes out looking a lot like them. Right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing because God did become one of us in Jesus Christ. But for us to limit the real Jesus on the finite, the sinful, prejudiced typecast of me or you or anyone else is a great disservice to the image of the living God. And Paul says we are to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, not the other way around. We don't worship Jesus so he'll become more like us, so we will become more like him. But how do we do that? Again, Paul says his divine power has given us everything we need for our life, for, for life and good godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and his own goodness. You see, Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus, every day with him. For the entirety of Jesus' ministry, Peter was there. And bit by bit and piece by piece through God's power and grace, Peter grew and he grew. And he grew in his knowledge and his understanding of Christ. And eventually he was so conformed to the image of Christ that he was martyred for his faith. This is the same Peter. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This is the same Peter that Jesus spends almost the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew beating down verbally. This is the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. Because he was terrified of what they would do to him if they knew he was a disciple. But he became so conformed to the image of Christ that eventually none of that mattered to him anymore. He was crucified and he was martyred for his faith. So what do we need to do how do we do this? How do we become more like Peter on our way to becoming more like Christ? Well, the first thing we have to do is spend as much time with Jesus as possible. 
Because that's how you get to know somebody. That's how you build relationships with people. That's how we come to love the people that we're in relationships with more and more as time passes. It's by spending time with them. You can't be in a relationship with somebody you never talk to or spend time with. I'm sure that would make my wife so happy if she didn't have to talk to me every day. But she does because we're in a relationship together. My friends are the same way. I talk to them all the time. Sometimes I wish I didn't have to. But I do. Because that is what relationship needs. You spend time with people. You get to know and understand each other. You experience life together. That's how you build a relationship. That's the relationship that Peter had with Jesus. That's the relationship we need to have with Jesus. How much time do we spend with Christ? How often do we pray? How often do we study scripture? How often do we come to Bible study? How often do we go to Sunday school? How often do we come to worship? Do we only miss when it's absolutely necessary? Do we come to the Lord's table to take communion every time it's offered? In the United Methodist Church, we believe that Holy Communion is a means of grace. When we come to the table, we're being nourished for our spiritual journey. When we come to the table, the real presence of Christ is there with us. Not that the bread and wine actually become the body and the blood of Christ. We do not believe in, in that. That's a Catholic belief. But we do believe that the real presence of Christ is there to forgive us, to revive us, to awaken us, to possibly even convert us. And that's why we practice an open table. Anybody is welcome to take communion with us because who are we to cut anybody off from the grace of God? And no one completely understands what happens at the Lord's table. That's okay. As much as it bugs us not to have all of the answers, we don't need all of the answers. All we have to know is that God has all of the answers and everything else works out. Because it's Christ who offers us his grace at Holy Communion, not the other way around. And that's why no one's excluded. So when we have communion, we come to the table expectant and open. And we're supposed to come to the Bible expectant and open, and to prayer expectant and open, and to Sunday school expectant and open, and to worship. I'm sure you can guess my next three words. Expectant and open. Open to God's grace through Christ so that, so that we can come to know him more fully. So that we can be more and more conformed. Transformed into this likeness of Christ. Many of us have had mountaintop experiences with Christ in our lives. Moments where everything just seems to be perfect. Where nothing could go wrong. Where you're safe and happy and warm. And you don't want to leave. This could have happened at a retreat or a revival. It could have happened in your own home. As you study the Bible and meditate on God's truth. Maybe it happens for you every Sunday. I mean, my sermons are not that good. But God is. So maybe it happens for you every Sunday. In our scripture lesson for today, Peter, James, and John had a mountaintop experience with Jesus. And he was, as he was transfigured, they got a glimpse of who he really is. 
As his face shone like the sun and his clothes became light. And as Moses and Elijah showed up and began to talk to him, Peter had a great idea. And it truly was a great idea. Lord, let me build three houses here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And we'll just stay here. We'll just stay right here. Talk about a mountaintop experience. And any of us who have ever had that experience can relate. We don't want to leave. Because life is hard. But up here, it's easy. This is where they were given the assurance of their faith. This is where they saw for the first time who Jesus really is. This is where they received their divine calling. And they didn't want to move. So who can blame Peter for saying, it's good that we're here. Let's make three houses and stay. We can hang out here forever because this has to be heaven. Nothing can touch us now. Nothing can bring us down from this place. Have you ever had a feeling like that in your life? Where you were just on cloud nine? It's amazing how God allows us to experience his presence in these these moments. A man named Roberto Gomez writes this. This is his experience with a mountaintop moment. I'd heard about the transfiguration story as a child, and over the years I wondered about the disciples' experience, he writes. What was it like? What did it mean for them? And then some years ago, I got an unexpected answer. One night I woke up with a sharp pain in my back, and I felt nauseated. The pain worsened, and I went to the emergency room, and I felt lonely and weak with pain. He says, I remember lying in the bed in the emergency room and suddenly there was an extremely bright light. And although it was intensely bright, I could look at it. There was a lovely warm glow to it. It was an awesome sight, but I wasn't afraid. I felt safe. He said, to my amazement, I heard the intense bright light speaking to me. Roberto, you're going to be all right. You're going to get well. I have much work for you to do. And he says, deep in my heart, I knew that it was Jesus Christ speaking to me. And then it was over. There are countless examples of people having experiences like this. Mother Teresa had experience like this. But not all of us have those moments. I've never seen Jesus come down to me in a bright light and speak to me out loud. But if you remember, Jesus had how many disciples? Twelve, right? Only three of them were on the top of the mountain. So that means there was nine of them sitting at the base of the mountain going... What's taking them so long? Only three of them experienced that. But the other nine have had their experiences too that confirmed for them that Jesus Christ died for them to break the power of sin and death in their lives. And that Jesus Christ now lives forever. But there's a problem with Peter and with Peter's plan. It's because the top of the mountain is not the end of the journey. There was much work to be done at the bottom of the mountain. And if they were going to follow Jesus up the mountain, they had to follow him back down. Yes, the mountaintop is an amazing place to be, and we want to stay there. And Peter wanted to stay there. But we're not called to the mountain. We're called to the valley. 
C.S. Lewis writes in his book called The Silver Chair, which is the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. He writes a final word through Aslan. This is what he says. Here on the mountain, I have spoken to you clearly. I will not do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain, the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. God is preparing us in those mountaintop moments to endure the valleys. These encounters can happen with a blinding light, but for most of us, they happen in the most ordinary moments of our lives. Those times where we truly realize that God is always with us. Someone put it this way, the mountain was the way for God to prepare the human band of companions for the sacred journey, to offer something to hold on to when they descend into the crushing reality of the world below. Because there's a lot of work to do down at the bottom of the mountain. As soon as Jesus and his disciples came down from the mountain, there was a crowd gathered around a man and his son. And the man runs to Jesus and kneels and begs him to heal his son. And he does. And a few verses later, Jesus again tells his disciples that he is about to be delivered into human hands. And they're going to kill him. But he will be raised on the third day. And then we're told that the disciples were heartbroken. Do you know why they were heartbroken? They buried the lead. They missed the most important part. They were so stuck on the human part, which is that Jesus was going to be dead, that they missed the miracle that he would be raised on the third day. On the mountaintop, Jesus shone like the sun, and he spoke with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets that he had come to fulfill. On the mountaintop, the disciples got to see who Jesus really was. But in the valley is where Jesus continued his ministry. In the valley is where Jesus was mocked and arrested and crucified. But it was also in the valley where Jesus was raised to life. Because not even the evil and the misery of the valley can keep the Son of God from rising from the dead. And not even the evil and the misery of the valley can keep those of us who follow Christ from rising from the dead. Living the kingdom of God every day. Ministering to the hurting the broken, and the lost. What really happened in the Mount of Transfiguration? The light of Jesus shined on his disciples, and they heard the voice of God. This is my son, the beloved. With him I am pleased. Listen to him. Because they weren't listening. They had understood that Jesus was going to be arrested in Jerusalem and he was going to be killed and he was going to be tortured and then life was going to be over. That's how they understood it because they weren't listening. When we listen, when we live in the light, then we can shine. We can be God's light to the world, which is what we're called to do. We can shine like stars. We can shine like the sun himself. We can bring light and hope to a world that is dark, valleys that are deep. But to do that, we have to come down from the mountain. We have to move away from 
the places where we are comfortable and warm and safe, where God's love is shining down on us and everything is perfect with the world. And we have to move into the places where life hurts, where grief happens, where suffering happens. That's the ministry of Christ in the world, and that's the ministry that we are called to continue each and every day. If we want to be transfigured like Christ was, be made into light, a light for God and a light for the kingdom, that is where we have to go. Amen.